Godspeed, John Glenn. All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh wow, it's going up so slowly! The state of the space flyer during the flight is being observed with the help of radio, telemetric, and television devices. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Hello, welcome to Space Boffins in partnership with The Naked Scientists, with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson, together in the studio for our final podcast of the year. We haven't been together much, have we, for these podcasts? No, that's because you keep going on little holiday, sorry, work trips. I'm not allowed to talk about the work trips. (laughs) More about those in the new year. But this time... We're joined by space journalist and TV presenter Sarah Crudders, and we're going to be looking back and discussing some of our highlights of the year. Now, there are many reasons to be depressed about 2016. But on Space Boffins, it's been great. Uh, We'll hear from the second man on the moon, the last man on the moon, nurse to the astronauts. We'll take a ride on a space sofa and listen to the amazing music again from CERN's Cosmic Piano. We'll also be recalling the first flight of America's first man in orbit, who sadly died this week, John Glenn, an astronaut who certainly had the right stuff. Sarah, you've got the right stuff as far as space credentials go. Me too. What, what's been the highlights then for you this I, year? Do you know, I've just jotted down seven. Can I do top seven? <laughs> They've gone then, up. Well, yeah, there were six, six before we went <laughs> started recording. Do you want to list your seven and just yeah, give a, a I, one out of the seven? I can list my seven. So in no particular order, Juno, obviously incredible, arriving at the planet Jupiter, um, the end of the Rosetta mission, the launch of Osiris-Rex, the rise in commercial space missions and Elon Musk looking towards Mars, uh, the you know, the landings, um, the return landings we've seen with Blue Origin and with SpaceX. Scaparelli, unfortunately, crash landing on Mars, but um, the ExoMars mission, the Trace Gas Orbiter, was actually a huge success. Yeah, and Tim, ongoing for 2020. There we go, and we need to celebrate that. Tim Peake returning from space and also the end of the year in space mission as well, so with Scott Cully. So that's just seven of my space that's highlights. pretty comprehensive. Can, that's I, can I cheat and just take those? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I was going to How add, many different ones? Yeah, well, I was going to add to that. I mean, I... I it was particularly, I mean, all those are fantastic. All those fantastic. You can't beat any of those. No, you can't Come beat on. any of those. But, well, Tim <laughs> Peak's, can you? well, the Tim Peak mission, I think there are two things. Firstly, the spacewalk, the fact that we had a yeah, British European Space Agency astronaut. Union flag in space. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. A, pro- a, a spacewalk, a proper six month mission. But also looking ahead, and this is a quite, it's been quite dull, not got much coverage, the ESA Ministerial Council meeting. This no, is when it they, doesn't sound exciting. Does, does it's it? not. It's really not an exciting meeting. It's a two day meeting. Put it as but a they decide, when, but it will be because they decide the budgets for the next few years. Yeah. And one of those things for the UK that comes out of that is committing 71 million euros to the International Space Station. So that means we'll probably either have another mission for Tim Peake or another British astronaut. I think it's financially it makes more sense to, to have Tim Peake yeah. because he's but already I, tracked. I think that will happen. It looks like all the European astronauts are getting second, in fact, in Palin Espelis' case, third. Well, that's incredible. I mean, that's what we should be doing. And... You know, what, one thing I loved about, I've worked with Tim Peake this year, as have both of you, and I've interviewed him. And one thing I love is that it's not going to stop here. That wasn't just a one-time show. He wants to go back. He wants to go to the moon. I mean, you know, another thing I missed off my list was the fact that ESA really want this lunar village, this moon village. 
it could be a viable um, thing for after the space station. Tim Peake would still be young enough to do that and experienced enough. So we could potentially, within the next 15 years, have the first British moonwalker. It sounds a bit out there, but... You know, well, no, this is what it's, science it's, it's and space is all about. Not totally impossible. Sue, what's yours? Well what, well, what I was just going to add to that is what I would prefer, and not just because I'm going to be making a, a, another radio documentary on the subject <laughs> next year, is the first woman on the moon. Yeah. I would prefer that regardless of the woman's nationality. Samantha Christoretti. I'd, As I'd we be know, very, we love big, Samantha. Big fans She's of Samantha been great for this program. I'm going to put a wager the first woman on the moon will be Chinese because I think China has really got their eyes yeah. on. Yeah. On the Actually, I think um, that's something we've not um, mentioned. And so as a highlight that's not been mentioned so far, I think the rise of China and Chinese space programme and their am- ambitions, I think, is definitely for, for them and for the rest of the world because it makes everybody else pull up their socks slightly and look over their shoulders in terms of what's happening. I would say China, that's been a, a definite highlight in terms of what they've been doing with their moon missions. Well, actually, at the same time, in in terms of Scaparelli and, and ExoMars, China obviously launched the three Taikonauts into space, into their space station. And do you think they're under the Mao regime during the moon landings? And look where they are now. <laughs> well, let's go to our first sort of highlight uh, from the year. In March, we had a Buzz Aldrin special after I caught up with the Apollo 11 astronaut before he gave a lecture on Mars at the University of Cambridge in front of an audience, including Stephen Hawking, no less. Now 86, that's Buzz, not Stephen Hawking, he's a busy man writing books, visiting the North Pole and, as was in the news recently, the South Pole, Antarctica, where he became ill and had to be evacuated. Fortunately, he's now discharged from a hospital in New Zealand and he's back in the United States recovering, so good luck on that, Buzz. But as I discovered from our interview... He's definitely a geek at heart, an engineer by training. He has a doctorate in astronautics from MIT, developed manned space rendezvous techniques that were later used on NASA missions. And as you'll hear on the full podcast in March, he devised these Mars cycler orbits. Now, he's done hundreds of interviews and it can feel as if you're on a production line sometimes, you know, hearing these well-worn stories and explanations. And that goes for other astronauts as well, not just Buzz. But there was one moment that I felt really cut through the professional rehearsed Buzz Aldrin. And that was all about his jewellery. I ought to explain that sometimes the little clicks that we're hearing are from your rings. You've got two quite chunky rings on one hand and three on the other. That's what you hear there. Ah, and you've got bracelets with bars on one of them. And are these all related to space, by the way, because you're wearing a Destination Mars T-shirt? No, that's a West Point class ring. And that's MIT, where I got my doctor's degree. That's a a ring that my grandfather had. Uh, This fancy one here was given to me by Muhammad Ali oh, wow. and his people. So it's got a big diamond in it, it. It has my name on it and his name on the other side. And now, this was just very typical symbol, not of Turkey, not of uh, other Islamic. Because it's a crescent, crescent moon with and, diamonds and a star. And a star. But having gone to the moon and written a story about travel between stars, it became quite appropriate to different parts of my past and history. Uh, but the star is really not as significant anymore, so I uh, need to 
round that off and put a ruby in it for uh, Mars. Symbolism uh, is catchy. Buzz Aldrin, and I like that fact. Interestingly, you mentioned uh, Moon Village. Buzz is a big fan of the Issa's Moon Village idea. I think, actually, what he's doing now, and this whole, it's almost a whole new chapter in his life, the What Buzz Did Next, is you know talking about the moon, talking about Mars, space tourism, and all the exploration he's done on Earth, I think is actually pretty, pretty he's remarkable. An ins- inspirational what he's done, man, I What think. he's done since 1969 yes, is he- actually stacking up to a awful lot of achievements I think there's been a lot of positives and negatives in his life and you you don't often hear the the sad stories which happen like his mum unfortunately died just before he went to the moon Um, he had a lot of personal issues but he's really changed his life and he's let's use the expression I'm from the north he's hard as nails like he's 86 years old and he went to Antarctica you wouldn't want to mess with him I did see him dismiss someone who was hovering around for an autograph beforehand I can't use a word without swearing but basically what his expression said was go away. Yeah. <laughs> there, I say, an not awful, now. An awful lot. Because he was working. He was working at the time. So an awful lot of production from both of us went into to getting that it interview. Did. I think it was you know yeah. quite amazing. But, Some but other stuff in that interview. Good on him for doing it. Which I, hopefully will be heard elsewhere in the yeah, coming months. I think there's no one else like him. I mean, well, in all of the Apollo astronauts, to be fair, I mean, Gene Cernan, who you're going to be hearing from mm. later, like they're all still working. They all still want... Gene Cernan doesn't want to be the last man on the moon. No. Like, and it's, it's quite a chilling fact to think the youngest now of the moonwalkers is in their 80s and we still haven't been back. Well, fingers crossed by 2030 we will have been. Well, in early 2017, a new film, Hidden Figures, will be in cinemas. It celebrates the relatively untold story of African-American women working as mathematicians calculating orbits for NASA in the early 60s. Well, in September, we featured another crucial woman working behind the scenes at NASA, Dee O'Hara. She held a more traditional role for women at the time as a nurse, but not just any nurse. She was the only woman working with the first astronauts, including John Glenn and the famous Mercury 7. The seven guys were selected in April, what, 59, and I was selected in November of 59, and I went out to the Cape in January of 60 to set up the, what we called the AeroMed Lab. And what it was was the pre-flight medical area for, for the astronauts in Hangar S, our famous Hangar S, I've always likened that the entire space program launched from, from Hangar S because of all the activity. There was a, a chamber, you know, altitude chamber there, and the spacecraft was checked out there, the suits were checked out there, so it's, everything kind of happened there. And what were they like? I mean, were they intimidating to start with? Because these were very much the right stuff astronauts. These were the best of the best when exactly. it came to pilots. They were the cream of the crop. As far as intimidating... No, I was terrified the first time I met them because I inadvertently walked in on them. I had only met one astronaut, and that was Deke Slayton. And I almost got a whiplash looking around at him because I, I didn't realize who he was. And then shortly after that, I met, walked into the conference room, and all seven were sitting there. And, of course, I panicked, said, excuse me, and backed out the door and went back up to, say, my office. And John Glenn came up. And he said, oh, come on, D, come back and, and see, uh, see the guys and meet the guys. I was 23 years old. I wouldn't happen today, of course, but it, it, I was terrified of them. From then on, it was, it was being around them and getting to know them. And no, they were never intimidating at all. 
And part of your job, presumably, was to build trust. So they trusted you, and, and you trusted them to be honest. Yes, I think with any relationship, it's the longer you're with them, trust either builds or it doesn't. And that was definitely a part, I think, of the strategy of having a nurse out there with them because they knew that if an astronaut got sick or injured themselves, they weren't going to tell a flight surgeon. But Colonel Knopf felt that they probably would tell a nurse. And if not, she would know, she would recognize something was wrong with them. That's a big issue, isn't it? When you've got these men who absolutely want to fly into space, they're going to try and hold things back. They're not going to be honest. They are not going to be honest about it. No, and I don't think any, any pilot would be, especially around medics. The medics are not their most favorite people, and especially flight surgeons, because as you know, flight surgeons have the power to, to ground them, and that's the last thing they want is to be grounded. And what were they like around needles or, the, I mean, very intrusive tests that, that they had? Right. Were they quite averse to No, them? most of them, well, none of them liked, really liked to be stuck. And the odd thing was we used to draw blood on them before they flew, and that's unheard of now. And they wouldn't let anybody draw their blood but me. And I kept saying, I am the last person that should be drawing your blood. I'm not a lab technician. And I shouldn't be doing No, you're the one that's going to do it, or we're not having it done. They didn't like needles, but they weren't really, no, because they were big, brave men. But I think they were very adult about it all. What's the tension like on the ground, given that you are part of this, and there's nothing you can do? You truly could feel the tension in the air. You know, they're sitting on top of this big big Roman candle or whatever you want to call it. I mean, and there was a lot of power and fuel underneath them. And so it was always, that was the scary part, was was when that thing lit off, and particularly the Saturn, the Apollo, oh my goodness, when that Saturn V took off, you knew something monumental had uh, had happened. It was a very tense time, I think, until they cleared the tower and, and were on their way. But it was always very, or at least for me, it was always very scary even though I knew they were capable, but I didn't trust machinery all that much. But thank God it always worked. What's it like, though, on the ground when something is going wrong? So with John Glenn's flight, for example, it wasn't clear that the heat shield was still intact. With Gemini, you had uh, Gene Cernan's spacewalk where his spacesuit overheated, and, of course, Apollo 13, the most famous. Oh, those were... I don't know quite, they were days that didn't seem to end. They were very scary. They were, the tension was was palpable. It really, you could really feel the tension. And, and everybody tried to, they, nobody made light of it, but you tried not to talk about it because then it made it very real. It was just a scary time. When, and 13 particularly, boy, that was, that was a cliffhanger. That was a nail biter, believe me. Zee O'Hara, nurse to the first astronauts, one of the nicest, most charming space people I think I've ever met. And I love that astronauts didn't like needles. I know. know. And it's it's lovely the way um, it's the people that um, it's that whole thing. And astronauts do stress this, that it's all the attention can be on them, that actually space travel is a massively collaborative project. You couldn't get there without the hundreds and thousands of men and women, um, as that 
reference to hidden figures will, will, will quote that women have been there right from the beginning. They may not have been as widely known, but they are who are behind getting people into space. Well, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, astronauts are just the tip of the iceberg in yeah. terms of people which enabled space exploration to be possible, particularly at that era. And then there was Margaret Hamilton, who's been in the news yes. recently um, for the is it Congressional Medal of Freedom? Or yes, on, I think uh, Obama yeah. yep. given it, awarded her that. Yes. Um, and, you know, you've... The astronauts are the glamorous tip of the iceberg, but there's everyone from the... One of the things I love to do when I'm in America is go to the ships, the old um, carriers which used to collect the astronauts, so like the USS oh, Hornet yes. out in Alameda in California, which collected the Apollo 11 crew. And so it's everyone, you you know, from the chef on that boat to the astronaut who walked on the moon, it's a huge... Thousands and thousands of people made the first space race possible. Yeah, I, I, mean, I think it's clear, for, sorry, I think it's clear from that interview, she's not giving anything really away about what the Mercury 7 were actually, no, what they no. were actually like. And that's that's great. But and I she think, knew them intimately, obviously. Yeah, she, but I think it, it does give a real insight, talking to the people who were involved, rather than the astronauts, into what that programme was like and what it was like to be to be part of that because you always get those same like we talk about Buzz Aldrin those same rehearsed yes. quotes and of course now we've got no Mercury 7 astronauts left anyway but it's a real insight into what the what the the, the programme felt like but even then even today I mean of uh, quite recently one of our podcasts you interviewed I can't recall his name but he gave a great interview the engineer who made a bolt that was on Rosetta that they ended up on a, a bolt, turned yes, a bolt yeah. that ended up, you know, on a comet. I mean, it's just just fabulous. It's it's from the engineers to the nurses to, like you say, the chefs on on ships that go to retrieve capsules or whatever. It's lovely. And I think that's what's amazing about space is is everyone can be a part of it, and that's only going to get bigger and better as we head forward into the new space age, which is of course commercial and private space exploration. So it's a really exciting era. You know, we we you know with the end with the death of. John Glenn, very sadly, on December 8th, we've lost the first generation of astronauts, but we're heading into a new exciting era, which was only made possible because of them. So it's exciting times of space. Well, over the summer, we were at the Blue Dot Music Festival at Jodrell Bank near Manchester, recording under the dish of the giant Lovell radio telescope. Now, in one of the marquees, I came across a talk on the universe as interpreted by CERN's cosmic piano now it's an electronic instrument that can basically jam with the universe and when i arrived the cosmic piano was responding to incoming signals from space using data from the sun and turning it into a melody via a process called sonification domenico vicinanza from anglia raskin university cambridge First of all, could you explain what sonification actually is? Sonification is all about turning data, information, numbers into into music, into something we can hear with our with our ears, we can we can listen to, we can understand and explore using our ears instead of using our eyes. I caught the beautiful piece of music that was using some sort of science from the Large Hadron Collider. Could you explain what you'd actually done. It's a translation into music terms of something that happened in 2012 at CERN. What we did was translating, was mapping numbers to, uh, to music notes. The larger the number, the higher is the pitch of the music note. And growing number means growing melody, decreasing number means decreasing melody. It was melodic, even though when you showed the music, it didn't look like it would make such a, a sort of rhythmic 
sound apart from the little beats of the Higgs boson. So what were we hearing? What had you transposed? Uh, that was the energy spectrum. The reason why it sounded nice and sounded quite interesting is because, first of all, because of the, of the music scale we've chosen, but also because the actual nature of the graph is coming from something real, something highly structured, which is, you know, is, is a result of a physical experiment. And so nature is structured and nature is beautiful. And if we find the right mapping to actually harness that beauty and, and convert that beauty into something we can listen to, we have interesting and beautiful music as well. The CERN scientists then decided to make an arrangement of the particles and the Higgs boson signal. We then had a jam session with pianist Al Blatter and someone wearing a movement sensor. Genevieve Williams from Anglia Ruskin University in Cambridge. The sensor on the arm was monitoring the position of my arm and the acceleration of my arm. So as I moved, we were transposing that position and acceleration directly to music notes, which enabled me to follow the shape of the graph and how steep or flat the curve was and sonify that data in real time using movement. So instead of using direct mapping onto a musical instrument, I was able to use my movement to map that data into music. this device that had lots of different coloured light bulbs. That wasn't so melodic, but actually it was pretty interesting (laughs) in terms of where it came from. The Cosmic Piano, uh, by the other team that was working with us, is um, detecting muons that are coming from space and actually landing on the Cosmic Piano. When the muons land on a certain part of the Cosmic Piano, it plays a certain note. Because we don't know when or how many or where those muons are going to land, it sounds very, very random. So that's what was accompanying us. We had the randomness of nature, along with this more melodic data series that was representing the frequency of the Higgs boson across a whole frequency spectrum. So that bit of music we had was live from outer space. That was live from outer space, yes. Third's <laughs> Cosmic Piano. Uh, this is the Space Boffins Podcast 2016 Bumper Christmas Special. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook, and we would love to hear from you. And we promise to get better at replying to your messages. Don't say that. We do reply to your messages. Yeah, but it takes a while. We're no, not well, great. maybe a day rather than a second. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll get do. better. I yes. can say we'll All get right. better. Yeah. It'll be great. I can say we'll get better. It's not an incentive to get people to call, is it? Really, we promise to get better. At listening to my... yeah, I think I this think is honest. <laughs> yeah, do get in touch with us. We love you. No, that's a bit. No, no that's, that's a bit. No, no. we don't want that. All right. Can you help us out here, Sarah? Um, you re- no, you're too busy doing space stuff. Yeah, oh, that's it. Yeah. We're yeah. too busy. Yeah, we're, we're too, too busy, busy for you. <laughs>
Now, if you head to our Facebook page, you can see a video of Richard explaining why we should send politicians into space. And it's not for reasons that you might think. Also, if you've not caught it, you can still hear our radio programme on interstellar travel called Christmas in Space and also the one about the history of women in space called Women with the Right Stuff. And they're both available on the BBC World Service website. Just search for Caravans in Space or Women with the Right Stuff. I also should mention that uh, Sue was nominated for an Audio Production Award, which are the the, the sort of Oscars of the audio production (laughs) industry for this very podcast. For this, for producing this podcast. Obviously, it's it's a a joint job between Richard and myself, but I was prepared to take the glory. You went to the effort to put the uh, the entry in. (laughs) I was prepared to take the glory on behalf of of the team. Sadly, we didn't win, but we were... uh, we were shortlist, and that's the second time in three years we've it been is. shortlisted. So Space Boffins so comes up with this big screen at the, um, with the National Film Theatre. Yeah, with oh, lots mm. of against loads of all the BBC uh, radio programmes and independent radio programmes and podcasts, so mm. that's great. Yeah. Well, next on our Now That's What I Call Space Boffins 2016, that needs to sound more Mark Goodyear, doesn't it? Because he does all those. <laughs> No, it's great. Now, it's that's great, what I call Space Boffins 2016 uh, compilation. We head to Huntsville, Alabama and NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center. I was there earlier this year to report on the new space launch system for the BBC. But it turns out it also has the flattest floor in the world. It's called the uh, Flat Floor Facility, <laughs> a warehouse covered in a black polished, perfectly flat floor. It was developed to test spacecraft docking systems and works like a giant air hockey table. Although imagine the puck has the jet of air rather than the table itself. Well, senior engineer Tom Bryan took me on a ride on the space sofa. This is actually an air-bearing bench and uh, we like to give a lot of demonstrations with people But we even use it to move equipment around in the lab because when I flip down this blue handle, you're now floating. (laughs) So we're floating off the floor on a a cushion of air. On about four thousandths of an uh, inch gap, air gap. Okay, so that's a little bit thinner than printer paper. And so uh, most of this floor out here, 95% of it is varies no more than the thickness of printer paper in height. So that means that with just a small fingertip, I can move all three of you. (laughs) This is great. And now once you start moving, you'll keep on moving. So we don't stop. Until you hit something. And that's the whole. That's why you've done this for space. So exactly, it's exactly the same as in space. You move something; it just keeps going. Yes, we can't move up and down, but we can move in all the other dimensions. And what's really nice is that uh, I will stop you for just a moment, and if you put up your hand and push against me, you are now a <laughs> So I'm pushing away. That's exactly what Isaac Newton said. That's great. This floor does all of the three properties that Sir Isaac uh, predicted. And because of that, it's the best thing we have in a small room to doing in outer space. And you're floating quite nicely. And if I spin you up, you'll keep spinning until I slow you down. And in fact, that's what that spacecraft simulator is, is we're now looking not just at satellites and going to station but trying to pick up older satellites that may not be stable and that need help 
And so what we're looking at is being able to, we call them tumbling satellites, and be able to grab a hold of them and move them. You could sell the rides on this. It's great. It's kind of weird. It does feel like we're floating. That's why we'd like to put a coin box right here and just have everybody (laughs) put in a a quarter or so whenever they fly. But more importantly, we did get uh, the administrator's and the deputy administrator's signature, and we hope to start collecting a lot of uh, signatures here. So that's Charlie Bolton's uh, signature on the... was here in December. And this is Deva, who was here to make the announcement about the secondary payloads. We have seen the evolution of a lot of technology. And this whole facility was built to develop a way of moving things around in space. And now it's kind of exciting to see that we're working on technology that will allow us to go well beyond the moon and go to an asteroid without using any kind of fuel. It, it's just amazing to me. NASA senior engineer Tom Bryan, our guide to the space sofa. Apologies for the giggling all the way through that. Well, um, earlier this year, Gene Cernan, the last man on the moon, celebrated the release of his first feature film called The Last Man on the Moon. It's a bit like the flat floor facility. It does what it says on the tin. The film tells the story of his life, but through his relationships with those around him. We hear from his family, ex-wife and pilot buddies, which gives us a, a real and relatable insight into the person rather than the space hero. Well, I was lucky enough to spend some time with him at Space Fest in Tucson back in June. And here's a short extract from our hour and a half long conversation. And we're talking here about the moment in the film when he returns to the Apollo launch pad at Cape Canaveral. There's only one place where human beings have left this planet. To call another planet, if you allow me to call a moon my home. And it was my home. Only one place on the entire planet that we left to go somewhere else. And we've just let that place disappear and 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 i said i wish i hadn't come this way i don't want to see it this way i want to see it vibrant i want to see it i want to see that big booster steaming all that oxygen i want i'm going to be ready to go again huh and and to see the way it was just it was just being torn down there was nothing there and and that 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 hurt quite frankly and here we are four decades later We've gone to the moon, and we can't even get our own spacecraft in space to go to our own space station. What do you think JFK would think about that? If you think back to Apollo 17, though, you ended on such a high. I mean, that whole mission, you listen back to any of the tapes of it. You you land, it's exuberant when you're, you're landing. You got so much work done, science done, you drove across the moon. And then you had those those final words, the final footstep. I mean, you must be proud of not just the achievement of Apollo, but that mission in particular. Oh yeah, I am. I uh, I needed. If you go back far enough, and and I've said it, uh, I I I was an underdog. I'm the only guy that didn't go to just pilot school. I needed that flight to prove that I was good enough. That was very important to me. And uh, and I was willing to, to fight for it. I was willing to, 
to literally turn down an opportunity to walk on a moon for maybe a chance to command Apollo 17. It was that important to me. Uh, uh, I don't know how, why me, how I came out of winter, but I did both. I walked on the moon, I commanded 17. But yeah, we were, I, I was on a high the whole time. You know, and people say, how's it feel to be the end? How's it feel to be the tail of the dog? Last one on the fence, and I got on my box. It said, we're not the end, we're just the beginning. Now, the beginning hadn't yet begun yet, unfortunately, from my point of view. But we're just, you know, we're not only going to go back to the moon, we're going to go to Mars. And indeed we are. At what point in time, I don't know. But, yeah, we're on a, how can you not be on a high when you've got control and, and you're in control of your own destiny? And that's where I felt. When I stepped on the moon, it wasn't the steps that counted. It was a fact that I proved to myself that I was good enough to get that far. Gene Cernan, the last man on the moon. And like Baz Aldrin, an amazing space campaigner, space advocate, and quite angry still that we've not gone back to the moon. And rightly so. I think genuinely listening to him speak, so um, Gareth Dodds, who actually produced that film, and Mark Craig, a good friend of mine, I was um, involved in a small part in that film, but listening to him speak it gives me chills i mean it's it's 43 uh, coming up to 44 years wow yeah 44 years since we last walked on the moon so 1972 um december 1972 it's 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 really sad to think that he is still the last man on the moon but we will go back i mean one thing um i've met and and interviewed gene quite a few times myself and one thing which has, has come across is that it will happen. All the things we think are going to happen with space will happen, but perhaps, you know, we got the timing wrong with all those 1960s Apollo Kennedy-esque dream and we went a different direction. But yes, there have been setbacks, but we are seeing this this new drive, this new race for space uh, and commercial space because once there's money to be made, as we've seen throughout history, you, you go somewhere, you live off the land, you, you can generate profit, um, it will happen and, and space will happen and all the things he's talking about will I just hope he sees something in his lifetime because I think him and all the remaining Apollo astronauts deserve to see either a return to a moon or, or plans, real concrete plans to head towards Mars. And much as though I'm a, a huge fan of human space travel, I think one of the highlights for 2016, her, the Rosetta mission, after launching 2004, is the... As I think it was, it took a NASA spokesman to put it in the best word was how audacious in terms of that mission. I think Rosetta has set the standard in showing what you can do with a relatively small amount of money for a mission like that. Long term planning, being bold, being audacious getting fantastic science, working on the fly all the time and having to, when they discovered this, the shape of this comet was duck-shaped rather than round, it, you know, it played a little bit of havoc with all their calculations of orbits and what have you. They are amazing and, and for me it's been as much of a, feels as much of a journey, although I didn't do any of the hard work on it, just covered it, uh, the mission, as, as for the space scientists. That, th- that for me is, is just a groundbreaking mission. I think though what's interesting about that, we were talking about human space flight and inspiring people, getting people into this, it, the way it was sold it's, though, it's was at, people, but, yeah. but it was sold as, it was humanising it. it. Yeah. Those storybooks, those animations were I think fantastic in a way of actually actually 
getting making the next sense generation. of it and getting drawing people in. Well, I, I thought they were brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't the, think much of the ambition film, but I thought the animations were the superb. cartoons. Um, that's exactly what I was going to say. Um, Design and Data, who made the cartoons, really pushed the bar in terms of telling the story of space exploration because it's all very well doing this great science, but if you don't inspire the next generation, if you don't explain to people why we're spending this money doing this, people won't understand. They won't support it. But those cartoons just they took something which is so unrelatable like space and something which is millions and millions of miles away and they made these characters and they made the story of a a robotic spacecraft relatable Uh, and that was just an incredible achievement in terms of telling the story of space exploration and something we need to continue to do. Funnily enough several of the space scientists that I interviewed on the day at Mission Control in Darmstadt when it was Rosetta's final day, they said the tears didn't come until they saw the cartoon, yeah. sort of waving, you know, bye bye. That's thing that 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 is, uh, you know, lovely. Uh, space scientists, that for them was the, the emotional Have you moment. got the cuddly toy at home? Do you know what I am regretting? Our house is filled with... Tat. <laughs> space <No>. tat. <laughs> yeah, but lots of... Ro- I got the mar- I've got so many. I've got Rosetta coasters, mugs, espresso cups. Have you got the handbag? T-shirts. Well, in the office we have a little memorial sort of memorial. section. There's this bookcase which has, which sort of divided into into cubes. And we have the, we have the duck, we have the, the CD. Oh, gosh. We have a coaster there. Wow. It's a little, almost like a shrine. Yes, a shrine. To Rosetta yeah, in Rosetta. the office. Think of what and you I didn't get the cuddly, and I'm sort of, um, the cuddly Rosetta, and I'm sort of regretting it because it was there in the Easter shop. Yeah, I love the Easter shop. I know, but it has very odd opening hours. But, yeah, I'm sort of regretting not getting one more bit of of stuff to fill Um, out. Before we go, let's talk about 2017. Anything exciting going to happen? Well, for me, it will be, I think, um, ExoMars 2016. By the end of the year, um, it begins its science mission. And um, I'm also thrilled because work will be ongoing too for 20 the exam the next XMRs, the follow-up XMRs 2020 which will put the first european rover on mars which means some serious work now for airbus in uh, stevenage and their mars yard and and elsewhere in uh, working on that rover i think the big question for 2017 is the future direction of the nasa space program the american yeah. space program oh, and there are yes. so many speculative pieces and no one knows no one knows what's going to happen under a, a trump presidency my guess and this is a guess is that it will be a push to possibly the moon but certainly onto mars something big and they've got they're going to have the rocket to do it with the space launch system well my my thing for 2017 i'm going to be quick because i have a few but I, it's commercial space i mean that's uh, space 2.0 as they like to call it in america space 4.0 as they like to call it in europe yeah, what happened to three <laughs> you know, who knows who knows um it doesn't matter what you call it uh, virgin galactic blue origin and worldview enterprises which are the high altitude balloons i think those are the three to watch of course spacex as well they'll have a return to flight um launch sometime in the first quarter of next year i mean the rise in commercial space, the you know, we might even see the first unicorn in terms of a company actually being worth a billion dollars, a space company being worth a billion dollars in Planet Labs, which would be a game changer in terms of investment in, in private space companies and encouraging interest in Silicon Valley. I mean, you've got UK companies interested in that as well. And then the, the second thing is um, legacy and impact. And we talked about John Glenn and, and the impact that he's having in the legacy that his life's having um, as a British-American astronaut called Piers Sellers who January last year wrote an incredible piece in the New York Times. He's dying of um, stage four pancreatic cancer 
and he heads up the climate um, science department at NASA and he's still going to work because to him, climate change and finding a way for technology to combat that is more important than any kind of bucket list. And I think the legacy from people like that, from stories and people we may not have heard of who might not be as famous, um, are really going to impact on scientists and young people to help make a positive difference in terms of what we do from all this information we get in space. And that climate science at NASA could actually go. Uh, it would hopefully be done elsewhere by agencies like NOAA. Um, but yes, that's uh, quite a contentious issue. So on the optimistic note... Yes, I've suddenly got very depressed at <laughs> the thought of that. I really on have. the optimistic note, the forward explanation of the uh, exploration of the solar system, yeah. Moon Village, commercial hopefully, aspect, commercial space, More moon space village. station, and yes, all this uncertainty. And China, and the race to put um, another human being on, on the moon. I mean, say There's race, so but happening. actually there is... You oh, know. 3D printing in space as well. I think oh, we're well, which is also part things. of the Moon Village yep. uh, plan. So, you know, the aim with 3D printing, it sounds like science fiction, but within this century to arrive at a new place and be able to print everything you need off the land using all the materials which are just there readily available to you. And that's just an incredible game changer to think. Because you imagine if um, Apollo 13 had a 3D printer on board, how different yes. that scenario would have been. Uh, Although they wouldn't have had the power to make it. No, work. that's true. That's true. But they might have had the... No, you know, when it, I'm, I'm a complete yeah. anorak when it comes There's to Apollo There's always someone who ruins the story. Yeah, exactly. There'd be too much moisture in the capsule. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Best film ever. <laughs> Space Boffins is a Boffin Media production in partnership with The Naked Scientists and supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium. Thanks very much to Sarah Crudder for joining us for our highlights of 2016 for that from a podcast point of view. And we'll be back next year and we have some exciting plans. Um, stay tuned. In the meantime, do get in touch with us via Twitter and Facebook. Also, I should say thanks to uh, Sam, who's been our sound engineer at uh, Heavy Entertainment throughout the year. Yeah, we have a sound you, engineer, believe it or not. Yeah, I know. Um, we're going to finish this year with a celebration of the first flight of John Glenn. And uh, we'll link to the full NASA documentary. Much of this was taken from on our Facebook page. Thanks very much for listening over the past year. And see you in 2017. Godspeed, John Glenn. Three, two, one, zero. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Capsule is turning around. Oh, that view is tremendous. Roger, power has started. Roger, capsule turning around, and I could see the booster during turnaround just a couple of hundred yards behind me. It was beautiful. Roger, seven, you have a go at least seven orbits. Roger, understand go for at least seven orbits. Roger, how you doing, Gordo? We're doing real fine up here. Everything is going very well. Over. Any symptoms of vertigo or nausea at all, over? Negative. No symptoms whatsoever. I feel fine. Over. So. Just to my right, I can see a big pattern of light. Apparently right on the coast. Uh, I can see a, the outline of a town and a very bright light just to the south of it. Two. One. Fire. Roger. Directors are firing. Yeah, are they ever? It feels like I'm going back toward Hawaii. The Mercury team at Cape Canaveral reaches a crucial decision. We have decided to re-enter with the pack on. He will have to crank in the periscope manually. 10,800 feet in. 
Beautiful shoot. Shoot looks good. On O2 emergency and the shoot looks very good. The rate of descent has gone to about 4.2 feet per second. The chute looks very good. The Friendship 7 standing by for impact. John Glenn had kept as Columbus and Magellan, Sir Francis Drake and the Wright brothers kept before him a rendezvous in time and history and the forward march of man. After four hours and 56 minutes in space, John Glenn and Friendship 7 returned to Earth. Four hours and 56 minutes in space as the representative of all the members of the Mercury team, all the people of America, and all men who treasure freedom everywhere. The voyage of Friendship 7 marks only the end of the beginning of free man's exploration of the vast, infinite ocean of space.